Greetings, everyone. I'm Peter Moline, the keeper of a blog titled Time Now, The Wars in Iraq and Afghanistan in Art, Film, and Literature. Adrian Bonnenberger has given me the keys to the Wrath Bearing Tree podcast this month and given me license to invite anyone I want to talk about in any book and military and veteran related subject I chose. With that kind of license, I wasn't about to say no. And so I'm here today with two friends, Patrick Deere and Matt Gallagher to discuss Matt's 2020 novel, Empire City, and its uncanny portrait of an unruly public political sphere dominated by veterans, violence, and militaristic thinking that seemed to forecast the January 6th violent disruption of the American electoral process in Washington, D.C. So greetings, Patrick. Greetings, Matt. Before we get going and to talk about the, the books and the subjects we want to discuss, I want to go a little bit further into the introductions. Patrick Deere is an associate professor of English at New York University and a longtime shrewd observer of the contemporary war writing scene and war culture here in the US and his home country of England. He is the author of Culture and Camouflage, War, Empire, and Modern British Literature, and is currently working on two books, Surge in Silence, Understanding America's Cultures of War, and Deep England, Forging British Culture After Empire. So the presence of the word empire in those titles suggests why I'm excited to have Patrick here to offer his thoughts about Empire City. I'll also add that Patrick in his capacity as head of NYU's Culture of War Symposium hosts Matt Gallagher's Words After War Veterans Writing Workshop, a long running, very estimable endeavor that has helped many authors find their writing voices and way into print. So Matt Gallagher has been a fixture in eminence, truthfully, in the contemporary war writing scene since the 20 aughts. His blog from Iraq, where he served as a US Army officer, titled Kaboom, served as the basis for a memoir of the same name. He edited and contributed to Fire and Forget, the important and influential anthology of contemporary veteran fiction. He is the author of Youngblood, a novel about war in Iraq, and also the author of many occasional pieces in prominent media outlets. And now Empire City, the paperback version of which, if I have it right, appears today, January 25th. Is that right, Matt? It is, it is Peter, yes. All right, congratulations. Congratulations and very much. Thanks for being here. Hey, Matt, uh, I know you're the last to toot your own horn, but can you offer a roll call of some of the writers you've worked with in Words After War who might be familiar to the WBT readers and listeners? Sure. Thanks so much for having, having me. Uh, Patrick, thanks, uh, thanks for being here as well. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, Words After War workshop uh, that brings together veterans and civilians uh, to study conflict literature together, kind of a way to bridge the military-civilian divide on a, uh, on a community level. I already know I'm going to leave some, some great folks out that I've worked with over the years, but Teresa Fazio, the Marine veteran, just had her memoir, uh, Fidelis, come out last year, uh, is one of our distinguished alums, uh, Kristen Rouse, who's a prominent veteran uh, activist and uh, nonprofit leader here in New York City. Uh, there's Brandon Caro, uh, the novelist of Old S Silk Road. Corey Sobel, a novelist uh, and civilian who, whose novel The Red Shirt just came out last year, and I, I just think the world of it. There's Rachel Canberry, uh, an editor at 12. Uh, Jared Alexander, a Marine veteran whose uh, book The Volunteers is coming out next year. And uh, uh, I'd be Remiss not to mention uh, Congressman Peter Meyer, newly elected of Michigan, who uh, has been in the news recently as a uh, defiant Republican voice uh, against what happened January 6th. And he voted, uh, was one of the 10 uh, congressional Republicans to, to vote for impeachment of President Trump. Um, and he is, uh, uh, of his many claims to fame, he's also a Words, a Words After War alumni. 
Holy, that's quite a roster. That's quite a list. You know, there are those that do and those that teach, and then there are those that teach and do, and you appear to be of that latter stripe. Patrick, when did you first take note of uh, Matt's writing? When did you first meet Matt, and how did uh, NYU and Words After War come together? Thanks so much, Peter, for having me here, and to Adrian Bonnenberger. Um, I'll try and pronounce wrath-bearing tree correctly uh, with my English pronunciation. It's wonderful to be here with you, Matt, also. Well, I was aware of Matt's writing through his first book, Kaboom, that was based on his mill blog while he was still serving in Iraq. And then I think I was trying to recall the exact year, Matt, but there was a gathering of this remarkable array of New York City veteran writers' workshops and literary organizations uh, at NYU's um, creative writing Lillian Vernon House. And there was a get together there and that was where I first met um, Matt and Brandon Willits who had started Words After War originally. You, Matt, which year did, did Words After War start in originally? Do you recall? Yeah, we, we started up in 2013. So I'm thinking that uh, that NYU event we met at Patrick was maybe 2014 or so. Yeah, that sounds right to me. And at that time, I had started up a group called the NYU Cultures of War and the Post-War Research Group with a bit of funding from NYU's Center for the Humanities. And that was to do some public humanities program uh, programming. Again, a similar mission to Words After War to bridge the civilian veteran divide and to bring all sorts of people together, scholars, writers, veterans, activists and community organizers. So we collaborated on some public programming thereafter. And then at a certain point, NYU Cultures of War, we were delighted to provide space to Words After War in our English department building on Green Street. I think, Matt, that was after your Brooklyn pop-up space. What was that place called? Uh, the Mellow Pages Library was our original space. It was the only place in all of New York City that would give a startup literary organization free event space. And there were these two kind of hipster dudes off the, uh, off the Morgan stop deep in Bushwick off the L train uh, who were super into it. They, they were great. I mean, it was a really grungy, too cool for school place. I had to break in through a window one time when they forgot we were coming but they were totally cool with that. I'm glad to be in an institution like NYU now, but uh, I have fond memories of, of our beginnings out in Bushwick as well. well there, there's a great book waiting to be written, maybe a great podcast waiting to be held on the New York City war writing scene with all its branches and sequels and factions and endeavors and events and spaces and accomplishments. So right now, let's move on to uh, the rest of this podcast, which is going to be focused or eventually work its way towards discussion of Empire City. But the way Adrian and the Rathbearing Tree folks like to set these things up is they like the, the guests to discuss a piece of short fiction prior to the main event, an appetizer prior to the main course, if you will. And so we're going to talk for just a couple of minutes about a story that I selected that I think helps us bridge into Empire City. It's by an author we all know, another uh, 
eminence on the, uh, the war writing scene, Elliot Ackerman. And the story is Two Grenades, and it can be found in the fiction anthology, The Road Ahead, which appeared in 2016, sort of simultaneously with uh, President Trump's surprise election, right? And I thought, you know, I'm not so sure any of the authors in The Road Ahead saw that coming, but the title alone sort of points towards the future, right? Puts the past in the rearview mirror and subtly or not so subtly sort of suggests new directions. And I think Elliot's story does a little bit of that for us as well. I'll also say I just wanted to talk about um, the story because I like it a lot. Um, also, because um, I think it's Elliot's only short story or published short story. I don't know, Matt, you know better. Um, he's, we know he's got three, four novels and a, and a memoir and a collected essays, but I, short fiction is not something he's known for, yeah? Uh, he's published a couple other stories. Um, and knowing Elliot, uh, I'm sure he has a couple more in the drawer, given his ability to to proficiently churn out work. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking, I know he published a story with Echotone uh, a couple years ago mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and um, some other journal up in New England. Uh, and I don't, I'm not sure exactly which one. So he, he, okay. he has two or three out there to, yeah. include, to, to, to include two grenades. Right, yes. But I, th- I think the story really shows all its gifts, which is a, a sense of place and a sense of a story or a situation that can serve as the kernel for just an interesting confluence or confliction of, of, of personalities and values and ideas about thing in a very short space. So I'll, I'll offer the, the quick summary of the story and then uh, we'll go around the horn a couple of times and share our impressions of it. So Two Grenades is about a Marine company on outpost duty in Iraq, uh, some, you know, somewhere uh, probably between 2010 and 2015. The unit is at the end of their tour. It's been relatively quiet. They've seen some action, but things have definitely simmered down and now they're getting ready to go home. Uh, Elliot has placed the action on in a sort of a curious location. Uh, the company outpost or in headquarters is on the top of a dam, the Haditha Dam way up there on the Western edge of Iraq, I guess, buttoned up against the Syrian border. The central figure is a Sergeant Garcia, right? And Sergeant Garcia has been a good Marine for the course of the seven month tour, but he's not been an outside the wire guy. He hasn't seen action. He hasn't seen combat. He hasn't pulled the trigger. He hasn't been shot at. He's been what in the military we might call a TOC rat, tactical operations center rat, right? He answers the radios, he compiles reports. There are these guys in every unit, right? And they're essential. They do their job, but here towards the end of the end of the tour, Sergeant Garcia desperately wants to get outside the wire. It's important to his own sense of himself. It's important to his sense of himself going forward. And so he cajoles and berates the company commander, Captain Upton, into changing the manning roster of the patrol, the last mission. And Captain Upton is an interesting character. I like him in this story. You know, he doesn't want to do it. He knows it can go wrong, but he kind of thinks it probably won't go wrong, but you know, it's still not the right thing. He's suspicious. He sees all too well what is motivating Sergeant Garcia and he doesn't really like it, but he's balancing, accomplishing the mission, taking care of men, so he acquiesces. And you know, one of the reasons he does is he knows the patrol is being led by one of his best sergeants, uh, a sergeant who's known as Gripper or the Gripper. And Gripper is all that that you want out of a seasoned Marine uh, infantry leader. He's calm, he's got good judgment. Um, he's not too worked up over anything, but if anything goes haywire, he's just the person you want there with them. And so 
the patrol rolls out with Sergeant Garcia. The first few hours are just as boring as uh, Captain Upton might have wanted it to be. It, it seems likely, unlikely that any combat or any action is going to happen. But then things do happen. They happen very quickly, right? It's not exactly combat the way Sergeant Garcia wants it to be, but bad things happen. In part due to Sergeant Garcia's incompetence, the gripper is very badly wounded and two Iraqis end up dying. And so that's a very unfortuitous end, turn of events, but it's not even yet the end of the story as they return to the outpost. And I'm not gonna give away the, the final, final twist of the plot, but Sergeant Garcia sort of perpetrates one more act and says this desperate urge to sort of have, you know, to earn that combat action ribbon, right? It just seems so vitally important to him that it'll go to almost any lengths. So sort of somber and sober and sort of a grim look at things. In, you know, and I, I can't help but think like, you know, why was it so important to Sergeant Garcia that this tour end this way or add up in this way as he goes forward uh, in his life? These guys are at the end of their combat tour. They're about to become the veterans that are so much the subject of Empire City. So we see them right there on that precipice with a bunch of stuff happening and a bunch of ideas in their head getting ready to move into the rest of their lives uh, with those memories and those ideas about things. So that's me. All right. That's my, that's my take on it. Uh, Patrick, had you read the story before and, 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 and how did you respond to it? No, actually I hadn't read this one before though. I'd read a bunch of stories from the, the road ahead, which is a wonderful anthology co-edited by our WBE. Yeah, I should mention yeah, no, uh, just a real gem. I mean, it's interesting, as Matt was talking about, had uh, Elliot Ackerman, who's, <clears throat> you know, like Matt uh, and, and Phil Clyde, also really a, a leading figure in contemporary US war writing, had Elliot's ability, Elliot Ackerman's ability to work in short form. I was, I, I immediately thought in terms of the very precise evocation of place, of setting, the exploration of moral dilemmas and people struggling to make uh, the right decisions under, under pressure. His memoir, Places and, and Names, whose subtitle is On War, Revolution and Returning, is very much written in these sort of short, uh, sometimes lyrical, sometimes devastatingly closely observed sections. Uh, so I sort of felt, was almost like I was coming across a familiar uh, approach in Elliot Ackerman's writing, but in, in short fiction. I was, as someone, you know, who's a civilian, I'm a literature professor, have grandparents and great-grandparents in the World War II, World War I, going back in... Britain, but I was, some of my literary an, antennae were going off. It's, the company is stationed on a dam, so there's absolutely that sense of being on a threshold, and that's evoked very powerfully in this strange ending, uh, yeah, in which um, Sergeant Garcia, right. again, takes a pretty faithful decision, which is all about getting this combat action ribbon and then they head out on the final patrol of the 
deployment and they're stuck in this Samuel Beckettian tower <laughs> way out there in the desert. There are three, it's definitely got that waiting for Godot feel a little bit. There are three Iraqi soldiers and they don't even have their rifles with them. You know, they're just sitting there. And in many ways, there's a representation of the other, of these Iraqi soldiers who have a much better grasp of the situation than Sergeant Garcia, who's outside the wire. It's interesting, Peter, you said that disaster that happens, they're manning a checkpoint, but really it's two orange traffic cones served yeah. from a tower. And this tower, I couldn't help but think of those, the towers in Graham Greene's The Quiet American, where Pyle and the British cynical journalist are stuck overnight watching and waiting. And you said that it's maybe Garcia's fault. You know, a car runs over the what's it called, the ribbon wire. Yeah. I wasn't absolutely clear if it's his fault, but certainly he's out of it. He's not on top of the situation. And so it really feels like a collision, an accident. Garcia's provoked to do something heroic and pulls a, yeah, yeah. a mother out of a burning car. He, he gets does well, burned. he does well on his way. Yeah. But, but remember, it is the grenade. It is the grenade that falls off of his equipment that explodes and then uh, probably is the result of the deaths or, or, the, 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 uh, or the injury to, to the gripper, right? So, it's, uh, you know, he does some great things. Yeah. It's, com- it's a little bit complicated. And, and Captain Upton tries to say, like, you've done well, you've done well. It's just not enough. For, it's not really combat. So I can't give you that combat action ribbon. Ah, I don't know. You know, so, so yes, yeah, so there's some complexity built into it. Matt, uh, you've been, you were a platoon leader in, uh, in Iraq, right? And you know those t- imperatives of like taking care of men, accomplishing the mission. What, what, do you, what do you see in the story? And did you identify with any of the characters or do you know people like them when you were serving? Oh, very much. You know, getting that combat action. I was in the army, so we called it, it was the combat action badge for us. But same thing. It was, yeah. it was vitally important. It was a way of proving that you'd been there that, that, as a combat soldier. And then, you know, we, we got ours pretty early on into our tour. And then I remember just thinking afterwards, that was really stupid. But <laughs> I had that, I had the, I had the freedom and liberty to say that because I, because I had it. So mm-hmm. I very much think it was a really fascinating choice for Elliot to make, to, to, to kind of propel this story. It's really kind of a consummate Elliot Ackerman story, uh, really trying to hone in on, on why people make the choices that they do. And uh, often the characters themselves are conflicted uh, mm-hmm. by that. Pete, you mentioned, you know, those two events there at the end. Well, you know, the one, the incident with the car, uh, certainly I suspect will be the one that Garcia dwells on years down the line about uh, what he did well and what he could have done better, his responsibility and culpability in saving lives, but also also injuring uh, a fellow Marine. Uh, mm-hmm. But of course, then it's the, the reckless act that follows that, that mm-hmm. uh, will show up on his, on his actual military paperwork. That, that's mm-hmm. the thing that'll show that he's a quote unquote, a uh, real veteran, a real Marine. Yeah. Uh, and so like, there's just a dark irony there that I think Elliot uh, is real subtle with that makes it, makes it so sharp. Garcia, of course, I thought it, thought it maybe was a nod to the essay by Albert Hubbard, uh, A Message to Garcia. Right, mm-hmm. that right. every right. every military young leader uh, is forced to read, yeah. uh, and uh, some enjoy uh, more than others. So I thought that was probably intentional. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I also just really wanted to call attention. It, Elliot's work is like this. It, it has this slow burn quality. It kind of lulls you in. Mm. It's very Hemingway-esque. You all have kind of already cited kind of the, he's so good at these micro settings. But the, on a language level, he kind of he kind of lulls you in, and then he he, he just uh, uh, brings these beautiful beautiful lines like this. They drove through the night as though the morning wasn't inevitable, but a destination on the map to be achieved. Every few kilometers, the road sunk into the wadis and then rose back onto the plain, shambles of rock and dust. When the first seam of light split the horizon, uh, Manuel felt crushed by the desert and the road and his own smallness against them. I mean, that is, that is just uh, a vivid, layered iceberg type of writing. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, I, I suspect Elliot wrote this uh, a number of years ago, but you can, you can see all the seeds that we now, you know, that we now, now see as celebrated novels mm-hmm. all in these, you know, 12, 13 pages of a short story. Well, that's how I praise one author to another, um, one English professor to another English professor, Patrick, you're right, if I'm gonna throw some literary antecedents on the table. I, I thought it was sort of Melvillian, right? In the, um, the setting, right? That sort of the dampened down, grayed out, washed out setting, reminding me of the beginning of Melville's great uh, sea story, uh, Benito Sereno, Sereno. And then the pressure placed on Captain Upton to sort of be the officer adjudicating all these moving pieces and handling the emotional life of his soldiers and making these tough, tough calls. Well, that's uh, that's straight out of Billy Budd, right? Captain Veer of, of Billy Budd, who's forced to, you know, give, give him that, that awesome commanding officer powers of God to shape the lives of the people who uh, serve with them. Uh, you know, really, we could talk about this story a lot longer, but the clock is ticking. Um, we want to bridge over to Empire City. I, uh, to pick up on something Matt said, it was like, what would these characters think five years later, right? What would they be like or 10 years later? How would they be looking back on their experience? How would they tell the story themselves? That might even be like a good writing workshop prompt, like tell that story from different, from the viewpoint of different characters. Someone needs to give a little summary of uh, Empire City. I'll do that in just a second. But did you, as you reread uh, Two Grenades, did something go off? Anything sort of bridge your story and that story in your rereading of it? Yeah, well, what I found interesting was an awareness amongst Garcia and the other Marines that they're not quite sure what this time is going to mean to them down the line, but they know it will be formative, right? It's still very malleable. It's it's, It's still something to be shaped. I remember that strange, strange sense. It's almost, it's dislocating because you're still physically there, but you know that this is, you know, whether it's a, a family member who served in a previous war or, or you know, a, a book that communicated this, you know that some people are going to move on from this time just fine and it'll be a part of their life, whereas others, others will be trapped in those months for years on end. And that was uh, something that I think I wanted to look at in Empire City through different characters' uh, lives and experiences in different prisms and, and uh, capture that multitude of, of relationships to, to that time and place, that fixed time and place that Garcia and his Marines are just finishing up. Nice. Patrick, I think that's, uh, you know, such a powerful read on Elliot's story and a great entry point into Empire City. I mean, uh, I noticed that there's the real pressure, it turns out, on Garcia. He has a dream in which he's imagining being back home, and it's more like Bartleby the Scrivener, you know, stateside, and he's 
he's imagining his wife looking at him and being an underachiever and he had so much promise. It's amazing he's imputing a value to the, the ribbon as if his, that's going to be the be all and end all, the combat action ribbon or badge to his wife. And the, the other thing that I think is very powerful in terms of what, what might these characters remember after hit Sergeant Gripper, which is a very sort of, again, uh, like Melville, stories of the sea, the ambiguities and dilemmas of command, Conradian name, you know, a Sergeant yeah. Gripper. When Gripper's injured, he's crawling towards the Iraqi soldier who initially Garcia sees as some kind of hapless guy, Mo, it's more, when Garcia looks at him, he thinks, oh, is, is it Mo of the Three Stooges rather than Mo short for Mohammed? Um, but Gripper's crawling towards him. That's his impulse is to go towards his Iraqi comrade in arms who is very badly injured in this disaster. And then the other thing, just in terms of the moral contagiousness of Garcia's bad decisions, there is, and again, this, this is a kind of precision that you get in Eliot's writing. I can read this without plot spoiling the ending of the story, which is a beautiful short story. Right at the end, the guard ran up to him, panicked, casting his head about wildly. Upton grabbed him by the arm. We got wounded from that rocket, and he pointed toward Manuel. Upton says, we got wounded. So it's the sort of contagiousness of someone else's decision having corrosive and contagious effects and consequences. This seemingly good, good commander has now crossed over a line. He's been propelled by Garcia's impulsiveness. He's going to have to live with that. And we, we don't even... The guard ran over. Yeah. Were you hit, he asked? Just take me inside, he said. Brilliant. We're, we're left. It's a cliffhanger, you know. It's open-ended. Well, um, you know, his sense of himself as a, as a good officer, as a good person, our sense of him, too, has suddenly become very con conflicted and complicated because he is complicit. That sort of seems to resonate again in Empire City, where we have a variety of different types of soldiers. And I'm thinking primarily here of, of General Jackpot, Jackie Jackpot Collins, the, the, the three-star uh, former general who's now running for president. And she's good. She has a moral sensibility. She does have a moral compass, but she's also very conflicted, right? And there's some blood on her hands and she knows some shit that um, doesn't really jive with the public face. Gripper, I think, reappears in, uh, in Empire City as well, maybe as the Swenson character, I guess. He just seems out of a... a not, you know, a good sensibility, right? A take things as they come, not quick to judge, um, take care of his own business sort of way about him. So anyway, let's move on to Empire City. Um, it's an alternate history set in a, a world where America uh, triumphed in the Vietnam War. Uh, so the, mm -hmm. myth, the myth of uh, American invincibility has not popped, but it's been sucked into a longer forever war in the Mediterranean and North Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, uh, uh, there's a number of parallels to, to our reality, but you know, the, it's not the most literary reference, but I'm sure you've both seen Spinal Tap. 
mm. when uh, uh, he talks about his, uh, his guitar going up to 11. When I was creating this alternate America during the Trump years, which was a challenge not to, tr- to create my own world and not, not try to compete with the, the headlines, keeping in mind that, that the six and seven uh, that we exist in, in terms of issues of empire mm. and militarism and class warfare and economic warfare and, and uh, the war coming home, I wanted Empire City to be set in a world where that's at 11 in the best uh, spinal tap way possible. Nice, nice. Well, well, well done. Like everything's intense. All these like tensions and anxieties and fissures, right, are intensified and accelerated, right? And you just sort of dialed it up to 11 and put it into the story and then watched it all come true. You know, in yeah, the, in yeah. Once. Good job, Nostradamus. <laughs> it was supposed to be a warning, not a prediction. I, I, I apologize to to everyone for conjuring this dystopia into existence. All right, yeah, uh, so that was a great elevator version. So maybe to sort of pick up on what Matt has offered, a significantly reimagined America to heighten various aspects that are very dangerous and violent. And so, and so for example, the United States is now 60 states, not 50, as a result of internal tension and division. The Statue of Liberty, I love those Statue, Statue of Liberty references. It sort of sits decrepit physically and neglected, right? No, like no one cares about it anymore. And there's, you know, even Jackpot Collins, right? Her big idea of a great idea is a new memorial to sort of celebrate whatever the Statue of Liberty used to celebrate, but it ain't exactly freedom or that older vision of America. So America has been at war endlessly for 40 plus years in what are known as the Mediterranean Wars. Uh, most part fought overseas, but at least one case, the Palm Sunday attacks has generated the pretext for like enormous uh, like surveillance and security measures in the United States in the sense that public spaces are like um, either dangerous places or meant to sort of celebrate war fighting and warfaring, right? Just to keep the citizenry like completely pumped up and jacked up all, like all the time to, to keep this going. The U- this was so curious. The U.S. is said to have won the Vietnam War, I, and I think it actually did, although maybe it's a little bit unclear whether they did or not. It's, but a, bit, it's a bit nebulous, yeah. Okay, nice. I caught that. You know, <laughs> but but it's, it's it seems like an important. We'll get to that in the queue when we ask when we really grill you. But like you know, what <laughs> what what was that all about, right? I, I got an idea. I'm sure Patrick does as well. Let's see what else. The veterans as who are being continuously produced by this war have proven a very polarizing presence. As long as they're sort of either heroic or sort of compliant and docile, they're celebrated, venerated. But the minute they become troublesome or unruly or demonstrate troubles, they're whisked off to these settlement camps, right? In, in, in colonies or whatever you're gonna call them that in places like the Outer Banks, right? Mm-hmm. So this mm-hmm. very vexed response to the, the veterans in our midst. The novel takes place in New York City in a presidential year, so in the midst of an election. And we've already mentioned Jackie Jackpot Collins emerging as a leading candidate. So this is interesting to see how you've envisioned uh, a military person taking their place in political affairs at the highest level. And there's some really neat things you do with that. Now we'll sort of trace the different flavors of veterans that are appearing in this story. It's almost, for me, it's like a, a book about the way a veteran can be and can comport themselves, right, in public space, right? No one's retiring to their farm. That, that's out the window. No one does that, right? You know, they want to be right in the midst of things. And it's curious why that is the case, because I think it is the case. But there's two groups anyway, the Mayfair Project and the Sheepdogs, and they sort of fight it out on the streets of New York in support of themselves and their programs. 
And so the Mayfair project maybe has this leftist, radical left bent to them, composed of refugees and escapees from the settlement camps. And they got a twin agenda, that of peaceful volunteer social work and uh, also sort of violent political attacks and agitation. They're quite willing to intrude and intervene in these um, public ceremonies, right? This uh, a political address by a presidential candidate and then a Veterans Day or a equivalent of a Veterans Day parade. The sheepdogs are a little bit easier to understand. They seem more like sort of an armed militia or constabulary that um, sort of supports law and order and sees themselves as the, the, the force on the right with the enough moxie to fight the Mayfair project, you know, in, their, in its most violent manifestations. The real heroes of the book are the Hero Project, three army rangers who uh, have superhuman powers as a result of a being zapped by some sort of chemical radiation, uh, the compounds known as Cythrax, right? In some ill-fated mission in Tripoli. And so these are like some super duper hero heroic war fighters as if like being a ranger danger special operator wasn't enough, they're like supercharged. They arrive in New York City on this goodwill tour, sort of a pump up the citizenry, pump up the public, you know, sort of spectacle that they're gonna undertake. And they reunite with two other survivors of the mission in which they were zapped by this mysterious Cythrax compound. Uh, one is the helicopter pilot, a woman named Mia, uh, calling her Mia or Maya? Uh, Mia, Mia. Yeah, uh, Mia, right? And she was a helicopter pilot. She lost her leg in that attack in addition to gaining her own unique superhuman power. And then Sebastian is a media consultant kind of journalist a wordsmith of sorts, and he too has a superpower. So all these five characters are interacting and they get sucked into the events of the presidential campaign and the, the battle on the streets between the Mayfair Project and, and the Sheepdogs. Jackie Collins, she has blood on her hands. She has some sort of knowledge or some sort of involvement in that bombing that resulted in the, uh, the, the transformations of the human genomes that gave the, the rangers their superhuman powers, but we don't quite know how that works. Have I missed anything important? You covered it. I guess it's the uh, the Mayday project, right? Uh, the right. Um, I mean, a bit like uh, Occupy Wall Street type activist, anarchist force, but advocating for veterans issues. So really interesting the way Matt, your novel blurs the boundaries. One thing I wanted to ask you about, which is, I guess, a little bit different from your superb previous novel, Youngblood. Here, the narrative is constructed. There are sort of, you, you alternate between having the center of gravity focalizing the narrative through Sebastian, who's this, uh, who just happened to be there at the Tripoli attack, and he has powers himself. Then Mia, the helicopter pilot. Frankly, maybe it was the way I was reading it. I thought General Jackie Jackpot Collins much less morally ambiguous than, uh, she reminded me of the Burt Lancaster character in, uh, seven days in, in May. I, she's got some great fictional forebears, I think. So Mia has, has a share of the narrative. And then also you have Jean-Jacques, 
Saint-Preur, who's a, yeah. I guess, Haitian-American a volunteer, a ranger, also has superpowers. He's the sort of odd man out, along with Pete Swenson, who's the full-on gung-ho warrior. So I was just wondering, I, I thought that one thing, that this quality of sort of moving between these three different perspectives it's very powerful, and I would imagine, though, you know, it works from a reader's point of view pretty seamlessly. And I was wondering, that seemed to, that's a shift from, from young blood. If, Matt, you were very consciously wanting, you know, was this a kind of narrative that needed these different points of view? I imagine that must have been a bit of a challenge in terms of orchestrating it, though I think it works beautifully. So I just wanted to ask you a, a bit about your complicating the narrative strategies like that and uh, what, where, you know, what your objectives were. Um, sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I wanted to get away from first person realism with this book from the get go. You know, I'd done that in Kaboom. I'd done that in Youngblood. I just kind of wanted to, to stretch my wings. As I started developing in this alternate world and an alternate America, it made sense to have not only to write from third person, but to have multiple characters to follow. And I, I ended up settling on these three for different reasons. You know, in addition to, you know, they, they all kind of were part of the big, uh, whatever happened in Tripoli uh, that gave them their powers. All three of our main characters are super powered. Sebastian is just kind of a, a hapless, well-intentioned middle-class kid who was there. He was not a combatant um, on either side. Fate really just kind of brought him there. And, uh, you know, he's grappling rather openly with post-traumatic stress and survivor's guilt as a result. Readers get to see uh, his thoughts and, and his New York and, uh, and his life in the aftermath of what went down in Tripoli. Uh, Mia Tucker uh, was a volunteer for that mission, a volunteer for the military and, and specifically that mission. Uh, as a helicopter pilot, she had a very specific vantage point to that incident in Tripoli and to, to warfare in general. She comes from upper class, old money, uh, blue blood. And, uh, you know, I based her on, on some folks that I've met here in my New York over the years. <laughs> really earnest, driven people. Um, hardcore. <laughs> sometimes know too much and know too well for everyone else for their own good. So it made sense to kind of rope her into the political aspects of this world and uh, have her kind of be a, a driving force and watch her, her morals and ethics which she's so certain of and she's so firm with at the beginning of the novel, uh, get tested uh, mm. over, over the course of the story. Mm. And lastly is Jean-Jacques, who is one of the army rangers, a volunteer like Mia, but for very different reasons. He was a Haitian refugee and, and joined the military originally to become uh, an American citizen. He's from the working class. Uh, when we first meet him in his first chapter, he's revisiting Little Haiti, which is a, a side of New York I doubt very much either Mia or Sebastian know exists and certainly have never been to. Mm. So it was, it was important to me to going to do this big world building exercise and, and story with a lot of different moving parts to give readers as many angles and viewpoints into this as possible. Mm. And, you know, over the course of the, of the novel, you know, my sincere hope was that readers are forming the puzzle by following these three characters in a way none of the characters can put together, that readers uh, have a greater knowledge of this world and events both current and past than, than our three primary characters do. The Mayday project with their 
not not the violent side of it, but the side of it that emphasizes love and taking care of each other and service and helping seems actually very close to Jackpot's presidential campaign, the, the American Service uh, Party, and uh, with her very eloquent appeals um, to how a sense of service needs to reanimate America. And yet both visions are conflicted, right, by much more draconian or drastic things. But I'm not so sure that either the characters or me are puts that together, right, can, can sort of see the similarity. It's built in for the reader to absorb. I don't know exactly if I've described how you want us to take it, but I noticed it. You nailed it, Pete. Uh, they're ideologues on both sides of it. Yeah. And they're, they're so certain in the rightness of their cause. And they've all been shaped by their experiences overseas in such a transformational way uh, that they just have arrived at very different conclusions. And you know, I think that's something that that is very true in the in the veteran community. It's you know, on a, on a personal level, you know, I was in Iraq about the same time as Senator Tom Cotton, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, do, doing the same job. We were both aligned platoon leaders, mm-hmm. and my takeaways from that experience, my worldview was fundamentally shaped by that experience, as was his. And we've arrived at entirely different conclusions. Matt, that's that's um, that's exactly where I wanted the question, the, the conversation to sort of go towards the end. You know, you've been in the war writing scene, the vet writing scene for a long time. Now you've observed it over the years. When did you get a sense that, um, from a common standpoint, it was starting to diverge so drastically, so politically, and then get so heated, and all the trappings of fighting and violence and warfaring would sort of permeate the political debate or the cultural debate that was going on? What, what, what were the significant events or touchstones for you? Being exposed, uh, so I worked as a speechwriter at the veterans nonprofit, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America for, for Paul Rykoff uh, from 2011 to 2013. Those were the big years I was writing Youngblood, a novel set entirely in Iraq. My professional headspace was in this veterans world, and, whereas my writing head at that time was, was still very much in Iraq. So I think a lot of the seeds for Empire City happened during those IAVA years because I saw just how personal our members took some of the policy decisions or or agendas that the organization pushed for. I I saw veterans, you know, I'd just gotten out myself. So I was was really malleable in a way that uh, maybe more like Elliot's characters in his story would be. Whereas the older Iraq and Afghanistan veterans at that point, like Paul's era, uh, were, you know, they'd already been having these battles. Mm -hmm. So I saw just how personal this world can be, both on the legislative side, but also just kind of on, on the street level with the everyday members who, who aren't necessarily going down to D.C. to meet with congressmen and, and, and senators mm-hmm. to, to advocate for, for position X or position Y, but just, just kind of on a, on a day-to-day level uh, mm-hmm. and, and how quickly issues that should be apolitical, like the GI Bill, becomes a left or right issue. Wow. Uh, how, how things you know, uh, work for the organization when Don't Ask, Don't Tell was ended or the Bo, Bo Bergdahl incident. All these things became instantly political and, and polarized in a way that I found really disheartening as a young veteran, mm, yeah. uh, but it was, it was fantastic fodder for my future. Oh, man. Oh, it's so interesting. I mean, the war writing as it sort of emerged in the late, the 20 aughts, right? It sort of started from a common standpoint, pride in what we've done, a sense that people did not understand what we had done, contempt for the chain of command and national leader and national policy bullshit seemed to be a commonly soldier experience, but as you just so well described it, as it flowered, right? As it blossomed, sort of attached itself to national home front issues. Oh man, it got polarized very quickly. Yes, it did. Um, 
Before we return to veterans, I, I want to ask Patrick a question. I think it's kind of in your wheelhouse. It's, it's about the idea of empire, the results of decades and decades of warfaring overseas for whatever reason, like trumped up or legit or whatever they may be. How does it permeate the home front and, and sort of reverberate or, or set off a chain reaction of internal rot on the home front? I don't know. Can you speak to that? And then maybe Matt can chime in too. Yeah, I mean, that's a great way of framing the question. Obviously, when it comes to the former European empires, it's pretty easy to talk about them in terms of colonialism and decolonization. But I think one thing, it's interesting, Matt's novel is, it's not called Empire, it's Empire City, which is clearly a reference to New York as the Empire State. But in a way, by I thought by bounding this, I mean, really, it's cuts across different genres. This is definitely Empire City, I think, engaging with the imperial romance in a certain way and the corruptions of empire. The fact that an extended period of colonialism is going to produce a return from the, the colonies, from the seeming periphery to the imperial metropolis. And there's even a foreign legion. Jean-Jacques gets, he fights in the international legion in order, and the promise is you get citizenship. And there's also a kind of, um, one thing, Matt, I wanted to ask you about. I mean, your exploration of racial politics in the, the way in which if you have an American empire, if American exceptionalism has a hard time acknowledging the facts of empire and imperialism, because of course, the US was all about being different, going back to 1898, Manifest Destiny, becoming a geopolitical power after the Treaty of Versailles, 1919, under Woodrow Wilson. But no, the US was going to be different, not an empire, different from these other empires. But there's a sense in which the sheer duration of the Mediterranean Wars, this is the Forever Wars, as in Matt's novel, and then just the audaciousness of winning the the liberation of Saigon takes place I believe it's November 27th so it's around Thanksgiving in 1981 so the U.S. wins the Vietnam War but even that doesn't solve the problems of an empire because it keeps coming back and there's this conflicted sense the volunteers their heroes but they bear these moral dilemmas within them. And there's there's a kind of casual uh, racism that seems to, I think to your point about turning up the the volume to 11, uh, the casual reference to an English reader, you use this W word that people casually refer to people of color out there which to an English ear is kind of shocking. It's the word that was casually banded about. You get it in um, uh, E.M. Forster, A Passage to India. And I'm not being PC when calling it the W word, but I think that's part of your thought experiment. It's like it cuts across even quite educated, tolerant, liberal characters. 
seem to be casually racist about these people out there. And yet you have really sensitive representation of characters of color in the novel. And, you know, the, the struggle of all these vets, many of them, it cuts across class, it cuts across race. And where are they being offshored to, and they're referred to as colonies where they're keeping them. So I, I think it's a brilliant dance in the novel it's really confronting questions of American empire, but kind of keeping it open and making it very difficult. Again, it's the burden of complicity that you mentioned, Matt, in relation to Eliot's story. I, I think you engage your readers, but you make it hard for us, civilians as well. It's like, okay, well, where am I? What's my moral sure. burden here? It was important to me to convey that in this America, its status as, as an empire has been accepted by not just the people running it, fighting for it, but uh, everyday citizens living in it in a way that, in a way, there's almost a, at least there's some kind of intellectual honesty there in, in a way that our America still confoundingly grapples with the lies that we tell ourselves to sleep. But even accepting that is going to carry out its own lies. Uh, we've mentioned the, the war in Vietnam a number of times. Well, yes, it's kind of been won in this world, but uh, an insurgency still reigns there. But it's, it's more important, whether the war has actually been won or not, the important part of that is that Americans can say they won it. Mm -hmm. uh, that the, the myth of invincibility is allowed to endure mm -hmm. in, uh, in a way that our actual exit from Vietnam uh, did not allow for. The moral burdens, not too dissimilar from, from our world of empire, are carried by individual souls, many of them very young people, right? Mm -hmm. and, and none of them have been trained to deal with this. So what happens? when they come home and, and are supposed to behave like an everyday citizen again. Uh, well, for the ones that can't handle it, uh, can't reconcile that jaggedness and those contradictions, uh, they're whisked away to the colonies because it's more important for country and empire to endure, keep the myth enduring than to have regular everyday people uh, having to confront the fallout directly. Could it happen in our America? That was less interesting to me than it happened in this America that I wrote about. What does that look like? both on a society as a whole, and then in, in the souls of these, these individuals trying to make sense of it all. You know, a, a lot of the, the trappings of everyday life are still the same for the characters. They eat, they drink, they go out, they move around the town, things happen. But you're very, the book's very good, you're very good, like in, in sort of tracing these subtle habits of thought that have changed. And for an old guy like me, to imagine how these things, like this casual racism of quote unquote, good people or respectable people just seems like unthinkable but yet it is that the Statue of Liberty no longer contains that, that symbolic valence that it once did is like unthinkable. And yet it, it, it does for just about everybody in Empire City, the good characters and the, the evil ones alike. Let's talk a little bit about uh, January 6th. Matt, uh, you gave me permission ahead of time to ask about your brother who was in the Capitol on the day of. So if, um, you know, what was that report like? And then maybe your thoughts also on just the, the military aspects of the whole deal, the way the, the insurrectionists or whatever we're going to call them, right, were sort of gussied up in their camo and their gear, the way the military was or was not prepared to respond to sort of what jumps out at you as like the veteran and mill presence in regard to the events of January 6th. Yeah, you know, I mean, the wars come home 
to make it blunt, Lieutenant Colonels uh, and former E4s alike were in the insurrectionist rank. One out of ranks. five were veterans, right, apparently? Well, uh, yeah, according to recent NPR tabulation, one in five have, have some sort of military background. I'm sure we all saw that and wondered about certain people we served with that we protected and protected us but we know had certain politics that may have brought them there that day. On the other side of it, yeah, my brother works on the Hill, spent his afternoon and much of his evening in a, in a safety room. For a couple hours, we couldn't get a hold of him. It was terrifying talking to my mom during that time when we couldn't get a hold of him, talking with him that night, how shaken he was. And, and the thing that he, he said he kept thinking about for a few days was hearing the Capitol Police calling out for help and backup and nothing uh, happening in response. Something like this, frankly, was probably inevitable. 20 years of forever war, uh, an all-volunteer force that is, that is told from day one of basic training, it's, it's better and separate than the citizens that it protects. Of course, you, you do that long enough, you're going to produce extremists. And in an era of the internet, the extremists are going to find each other and get each other wound up. And that's why we're here. I personally am rooting for the FBI to arrest every one of these bastards and that they all get jail time and they be treated as, as the insurgents that I see them as. That's just a Band-Aid. These, these are deeper societal issues that aren't going to go away until these foreign wars do, in, in my estimation. And really, these wars really end, not the, not the gussied up pretend way that we, uh, you know, Republican and, and Democratic administrations alike have feigned at over the, over the last few years. Well, I was going to ask you, as a closing note, was there any hope or what might be a way we dial down the tension and the madness? But it doesn't sound like you've got anything right now. Maybe that could be your next novel, not a dystopian novel, but a utopian novel about how America puts itself back together again. I think we all could use a, a, a utopian novel. Uh, so that's not a bad idea right now. Matt, Matt, you have, as usual, Empire City anticipates it. There's in a Jacques Derrida Forgive me this, Adrian, for mentioning Derrida on the WBT <laughs> podcast, but they use this term mise en abîme for those holding a mirror in front of a mirror, you know, infinite regress. Within this dystopian speculative fiction that Matt's given us, which everyone should go out and read, I feel like there's some hope in the humanity, which is really at the core of your novel, Matt, however dystopian it gets. But there's a show called Utopia in it, mm -hmm. uh, could, in which River Phoenix is still alive, hooray. And Matt, just what's going on? And then, and everyone's addicted to this show, right? Even the May Day protesters stop and put Sebastian on the uh, on the carpet. They ask him what about a plot point in a recent show, but can you say something briefly about who River Phoenix is playing and what's that doing? In yeah, the alternate history within the alternate history uh, mm -hmm. is, a, is a show where Bobby Kennedy isn't assassinated and uh, goes on and becomes president. And it's, uh, it's escapism, it's political escapism for the people in, in, in this world uh, to wonder about a, a different and better America in the way that we all f look for in art. I, I had a lot of fun with it. It tripped, uh, according to Goodreads reviewers, uh, it tripped some of them up having an alternate history within an alternate history, but I regret nothing from it. I, I had fun with it. I think it serves some thematic purposes as well. It is a fun novel. It's clever. There's laughs in it. Not so many laughs, but some, you know, things will make you smile. You, you know, you'll be amused by it, even in the midst of all the grimness, the despair 
the anarchy, <laughs> the dissolution of a once great country and all the rest. And maybe in there, there's a, a shred of hope as well. Anyway, that's uh, Empire City, Everybody by Matt Gallagher out in paperback as we speak. They're waiting for you to be read. Thank you, Patrick Deere. Thank you, Matt Gallagher. Thanks for having me. Good Thanks. conversation, guys. Enjoyed it.